Well, as we begin this morning, I want you to think about your favorite traditions. Maybe you have favorite traditions now, or maybe you had some favorite traditions growing up, or, or maybe there's some overlap there. For me, and maybe it's just because Christmas is fresh in my mind, but I really think Christmas was kind of the highlight of my year growing up. And many of my favorite traditions were centered around Christmas. You see, I grew up in the same home. In fact, I uh, same house my whole life. In fact, I had the same bedroom from the time I came home from the hospital until I went off to college. And so that created a lot of stability and a lot of familiarity and the ability for these traditions to grow over time. And so when I think of Christmas, I think of a few family members coming in, maybe an aunt or a grandmother or a close friend of the family. And uh, we didn't have big family gatherings. When I married Heather, and she had all these aunts and uncles and cousins that all lived close, and I went to their first Christmas, there were like 60 people in a small house, and that was Christmas for them. That was a little bit much for me. I remember going for a brisk walk a couple of times just to get some space. But in our, in our family, just a few people would come. And on Christmas at Eve, in the afternoon, we would do some baking and we would decorate sugar cookies and we would make those little pressed mints. We had the molds. Some of you are smiling and nodding. You know what I'm talking about. And then in the evening, we would go to a candlelight church service at the United Methodist Church that I grew up in. And it's not, uh, service was not unlike the service that we do here at Linwood, which is probably why that's one of my favorite things that happens uh, in, in the course of a year at Linwood is that Christmas Eve service and this last one was just phenomenal. And then after that service, we would come home and we would have a big fancy dinner, like shrimp scampi and, you know, just like really good food. And then we would make our way in and sit around in the, in the living room around the Christmas tree. And we each got to open one present on Christmas Eve, which was a really big deal because you might go for the biggest or you might go for a little small one, kind of a sleeper one, you know, a surprise one or, or something like that. And, you know, as kids, once we started giving gifts, it was like, oh, are they going to pick mine or not? And, and so there was all kinds of tradition. And then we would kind of end the evening by reading the Christmas story and go to bed. And the deal was on Christmas morning... We could get up and open our stockings as soon as we wanted. We didn't have to wait for parents and coffee and food and all of that stuff. So we would get up sometimes quite early and get into our stockings and be opening those up. And then, you know, gradually the rest of the house would come alive and, and, and we would open our presents together. And we were not a chaotic opening of the presents. We were a one person at a time, usually with a story. This could take a long time. Um, but then we would have another big dinner um, and, and that was Christmas for us. And there were all kinds of traditions. And, and so you think about maybe your Christmases or maybe other traditions in your life. Maybe it, was, maybe it was summer vacations or you went to the same place each year or you did something different each year. Or maybe, maybe you had other traditions around different significant times in your life. And the reason I kind of set this up is, is that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is full of traditions. The people of God, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they had tradition after tradition after tradition. Think about this. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, grew up with all kinds of traditions. There were daily traditions prescribed in the law, certain prayers at certain times of the day. And, and every morning they woke up and they said the same prayer. And before bed they said the same prayer. And before each meal they said the same prayer. And there were weekly traditions, things that they did throughout the course of a given week. And particularly around the annual calendar. There were feasts and festivals and, and different times. It was like God said, thou shalt 
party to his people. He said, you're going to come together and you're going to have a feast. You're going to have a festival. You're going to celebrate together at various times. And there were traditions. And what was unique about that was it wasn't like each family had their own Passover tradition, right? All the people did exactly the same thing year after year after year. Passover after Passover after Passover, it was the same. And so there was this kind of communal identity around the Passover. And that was the biggest one. That was sort of the pinnacle, was that Passover. And so we'll push pause on that, um, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But right now, we're starting a new sermon series. It's titled Unexpected. And uh, we're getting things off with a bang in this Unexpected series. How many of you came in and did a double take when you saw the communion elements? And you were like, yeah, a couple of you. How many of you asked somebody, did, did we take communion last? I thought we took it. Was it a deja vu moment where you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. We, you know what? Jesus didn't say you could only take communion on the first Sunday of the month. It's nowhere in Scripture, right? It just says as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so in this unexpected series, we're going to be trying to learn to lean in to the unexpected moments of life. And there will be some unexpected elements or moments within the worship services just to keep us on our toes a little bit to learn to not always expect things to be the same all the time. Because if we get too used to the routine, too much into our habits, when something upsets that routine, we automatically assume that it's negative or that there was a mistake or that somebody messed up, and that's not always the case. In fact, over and over in Scripture, God moves in unexpected ways. He uses unexpected and unlikely people over and over and over in Scripture. Unexpected things happen, whether they're positive or negative. And if we can learn to lean into those moments and and not recoil from them, God might be able to work in our lives in some unexpected ways. In fact, that introduction with Romans 8.28, that's one of my favorite verses, one of the first verses that I memorized was that God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And and that's us. If we're in the family of God, that's us. And so whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, God will work it together for good if we lean into him and remain called to the purpose that he has for us. Today we're going to get things started with a message titled Paradigm Shift. And paradigm is not 20 cents. Paradigm is, wait for it, paradigm is a generally accepted way, like pastoral humor is an oxymoron. A paradigm is, is a generally accepted way that things happen. And so when a paradigm shifts, it means that the way things were always done is no longer done that way. And we're going to be talking about a paradigm shift, a truly unexpected moment. We got one of those this weekend. Yesterday, I get a text from Pastor Michael, our, our, our worship leader. I call him pastor sometimes. He's not officially a pastor, but he's very pastoral. And uh, he leads us in worship on a regular basis. And he says, hey, I'm not feeling well. I'm coming down with this crowd. Uh, but I've already talked to Russ and Cheryl, and they're willing to step in and lead. And the, sh- the songs were order was changed and all these things. You wouldn't know this necessarily if you came in because they did a phenomenal job and we're so grateful to have our worship team and they all had to make adjustments and learn new songs um, but did a wonderful job of leading us in worship and that was just one unexpected moment and yet 
I, I can't remember the songs we were going to do because the ones that we did were just so perfect for the moment and led us in worship so well. And so that was just one example that we weren't expecting even as a team. Um, but we're going to be looking at a time in Scripture when everybody was expecting something to happen a certain way and something totally different ended up taking place. We're going to be looking at the last Passover. You might know it as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. It's in Luke chapter 22. And what's interesting about this is that nobody knew it was going to be the last Passover except for Jesus. Everybody else at the table, everybody else that was there in Luke 22 was expecting the Passover to go just as it had every time they had ever done it, just as it had for centuries and generations of God's people. And so if you have a Bible or you want to grab one of those blue hardcover Bibles that's in the seats in front of you here in the sanctuary, it's going to be on page 1637 in those Bibles. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen as well. And I'm going to read through the passage and then uh, talk over some of the things that are taking place here and, and what people were expecting and try to maybe help us enter into this environment that we're reading about. And so here's what we read in Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, I'm going to use my notes a little bit more than I normally do, because there's a lot of details that we're going to cover here as we talk about all of the rich symbolism that went into the Passover meal. In fact, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface. And so you might be tempted to try to write down everything and, and not necessarily know how to spell stuff or whatever like that. I would encourage you maybe today to, to put the pen down if that gets a little overwhelming and just listen. This will be available online afterwards. You can always go back and, and make some notes or, or dig into this a little bit deeper. But this Passover celebration that is the context for the passage that we just read was a deeply symbolic celebration of that first Passover way back in Egypt with Moses and and the people being delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. And every element of it was deeply symbolic. And it points us to our bottom line today. And our bottom line today is that with God, there is always more than meets the eye. With God, there is always more than immediately meets the eye. And I think part of the reason for that is that he's infinite and we're finite. In our understanding and in our ability to comprehend, there will always be more of God to understand than we have the capacity to understand. And so there's layers. And as our understanding grows, then we can understand more and we can grow in our awareness and our application of God's truth to our life infinitely. We never run out. There's always more than meets the eye. And what we're going to see in this Passover is that while they had been doing this Passover celebration the same way for centuries and generation after generation, thinking it pointed back to that first Passover, it also pointed forward to something, to the Messiah, 
to Jesus coming and instituting the new covenants. And so this Passover meal that we look at here, there was a lot of preparation that went into this, okay? And so this wasn't just something like, it was like, okay, let's have Passover now. There was all kinds of things. You had to clean the house, like, down to the tiniest little crumb, literally, because they had to get all the leaven out of the house because it represented sin. And so there was symbolism there. And then there was this ritual of hand washing that took place for everybody that was involved so that they would be eating the Lord's Supper with clean hands. And if you read your Old Testament, they're always talking about clean and unclean. And this was a big deal. And so there was the preparation. There was the removing of the the leaven. There was the gathering of the ingredients and preparing for this feast. And it all had to be done before sundown so that you wouldn't be working on the Sabbath. So there was a lot that went into this. There was the washing of hands that took place so that the hands would be clean. Interestingly enough, in John's gospel, Jesus starts washing their feet as well at this same setting, at this Passover. That was unexpected. That was not part of the normal routine, particularly for the the master, the teacher, the rabbi to be kneeling before the disciples and washing their feet. So there were a lot of unexpected things happening in this particular Passover. But in a normal Passover, there would, once the hands were washed and once everybody was ready, there would be this lighting of the candles and the telling of the story of that first Passover. And this would have been recited from memory because everybody would have memorized this. That's part of the culture. They would know this story front and back. And then there were four cups of wine that would be passed around, and I just got some of your attention for the first time in a while. You're, oh, four cups of wine. Well, don't get too excited. They're small cups, and they were passed around and shared among everybody. So it wasn't that kind of a party, right? But there were these four cups of wine, and each one was symbolic as well. There were two before the meal, and there were two after the meal. So the first cup of wine was what they called the cup of blessing. This is the cup that's mentioned in verse 17 of the passage that we just read when he took the cup and gave thanks. That's that giving of thanks that he was doing. That was what you did with that first cup. You prayed a blessing. You thanked God for his provision in your life. And then the second cup was the cup of remembrance. Now, this one's not mentioned in Luke, but when they partook of the second cup and passed that around, they would retell or recite the ten plagues that were visited upon Egypt just before the Exodus. And so they would remember God's power and his might and how it was displayed. After that was the afikomen. Now, afikomen is probably my favorite word in this whole thing. I just like saying afikomen. Some of you are smiling too. You want to say it, don't you? Say afikomen, everybody. Afikomen. Even the cool people this time. Afikomen. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? Well, the afikomen was this unleavened bread that's on the picture behind me. It's the, what we would call matzah bread today. It, it's kind of a dry uh, crust type of a bread. No, no leaven is used in it at all, so it's not raised. It's fairly dense. And that bread came in three pieces, and the middle piece was broken in half. Now get this. Part of it, one half that was broken, is wrapped in linen and hidden somewhere. Okay. And some of you are starting to smile. You're like, that's kind of interesting. Well, this is what they were doing for centuries before Jesus. And we'll come back to that a little bit later as well. And then there was the Sadar plate uh, that you can see on the picture behind me. And this was a special plate that had a variety of different elements that were presented there. There was some greens, some bitter herbs. There was a roasted egg. There were uh, the karoset, which is apples and nuts and spices kind of mixed together. Every single ingredient, every single element uh, was symbolic and helped tell the story as they went through that. And then the last one is that 
shank bone from a lamb, which pointed back to the Passover lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed on that first Passover when they were told to to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to spread it on the posts and the lintel of their home so that when the angel of death visited Egypt, it would pass over the homes of God's people because of the blood of the lamb. And so deep, deep, rich, rich symbolism. And once all of those things had been done and had been talked about and had been eaten in their special order. Then there was a big feast because you're like, how is a big you know, Hebrew family going to share an egg and a, a shank bone and some bitter herbs? That's not much of a meal. Well, there would be a big feast that was separate from all the symbolism. And after the meal, after the feast, then there would be this little moment where the children would go and they would search for the afikomen. And when they found it, they would bring it back and, and then they would have the third and the fourth cup. The third cup is the first cup after the meal. That's the cup that's mentioned in verse 20. You notice in Luke's presentation of this, there's two cups. This is the cup of redemption. This was the cup that pointed to the redemption of Israel when God redeemed his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, into his chosen people. And then the final cup, the fourth cup, which is also not mentioned in Luke, this was the cup of praise. So the meal ended with praise, ended with glorifying God for who he was and for what he had done for his people. And lastly, many times there would be a fifth cup that was not used, that was not passed around, that was not consumed. It was Elijah's cup. And Elijah's cup pointed to the prophet who would return and usher in the Messiah. And so, and so there was at least an awareness that something was coming, that someday this would all change, that someday the Messiah would return and would usher in the new covenant. And so with all that as a backdrop, now let's read these pas- this passage again and read these verses again and, and see several things that maybe we would have missed the first time. That when Jesus says in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, He knew what they couldn't possibly have known, that every single Passover from the very first one up until this one was pointing to him, was pointing to this moment. Can you imagine? He had to be on the edge of his seat, even though it meant his suffering, even though it was going to cost him his life. He had to be seeing this as that hinge of history, that crescendo of all things, and he was eagerly desiring to eat this Passover to help the disciples see all the meaning, to, to realize this was the last Passover, that, that from now on we would do this in remembrance of him and what he had done. He knew something nobody else knew. He knew that with God there's always more than meets the eye. He knew what the disciples couldn't possibly have fully comprehended. And in verse 16 and, and 17, he says something kind of interesting, 16, 17, 18. He says, I tell you, I will not eat again, in verse 16, I will not eat of this bread again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And that probably piqued the disciples' interest a little bit. But they wouldn't quite, you know, they're not going to interrupt. Okay, they're, they're just like, okay, that's interesting. And then in verse 18, he says something similar. He says, you know, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And they're probably like, that's the second time he's mentioned that, but... Truth be told, Jesus is always saying things about the kingdom of God. So they probably just thought, you know what, let's save that. We'll argue about it after dinner, and Jesus will overhear us arguing about it, and then he'll explain it. That's kind of the way things seem to go in the Gospels, right? 
But things really get out of hand and get kind of crazy in verse 19 and 20. This is when the paradigm fully shifts, okay? When he says in verse 19, this bread, this bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the very next verse, he takes that cup, that that cup of redemption, and he says, this is my blood, which is a new covenant. It's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The, the parallel for this would have been, if you were here on Christmas Eve, raise, raise your hand on Christmas Eve. Were you here? Did you make it to the Christmas Eve service or watch it online? Good number of you. You remember after we sang Oh Holy Night and then they sang that beautiful special song and I came up? This would have been kind of like me coming up, taking the stage and saying, guess what? From now on, Christmas is all about me. We're going to call it Markmas. You're all going to worship me. You're going to bring me presents. And you'd be like, whoa, what is he talking about? And you probably would have run me out of town and you'd have been right to do it. But when Jesus says this bread, it doesn't point back to the last Passover. This points to me, to the new covenant in my blood. This is my body broken for you. This cup that you know is the remembrance, the cup of, of redemption of Israel is now a new covenant in my blood. This was paradigm shifting stuff. This was brand new This was a new covenant that was totally unexpected. And it presented a paradigm shift from the old way to the new way, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people, for us, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away. This was a paradigm shifting event. And it redefined several elements of the Passover for them and for us. That third cup, as I've mentioned, is no longer just the redemption of Israel. That doesn't just symbolize that. It symbolizes the new covenant in Christ's blood. And every time we participate in communion, we do it in remembrance of him. We point back to this first Last Supper, this first communion. It points back to Jesus. It points back to his sacrifice. It points back to his blood being spilled for us to pay the penalty for our sin, not just for the sins of the Israelites, not just for the Hebrews, but for all people who would come to faith in Jesus Christ, for all people who would respond in faith to him. That afikoman, the middle piece being broken in half and half of it hidden in linen, finds new meaning and and rich symbolism in Jesus' body going into the tomb, being wrapped in a linen cloth and then being resurrected on the third day. And, And so all of these elements have a new meaning as we move forward. And under this new covenant, Christ becomes that perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just household by household for the people of Israel as they're making their way out of Egypt, but for any who would take the blood of Christ and and proclaim its salvation over their lives, proclaim faith in Jesus and, and a desire to follow Jesus, they can know that same freedom. They can know that same exodus from slavery to sin and death into new life and freedom in Christ. It's rich, beautiful, powerful symbolism. Because with God, there's always more than meets the eye. In fact, even knowing this now, there's always more than meets the eye. Because of his infinite nature, there's always more. There's always another step to take. That's why I end so many sermons by saying my hope, my prayer, is that you will take your next step, whatever that may be, into a deeper communion with him, into deeper fellowship with him, into greater role of service or leadership in his kingdom. Because with God, there's always more than meets the eye. And he is able to do immeasurably more than we can even ask or imagine. He's limitless. 
And he begs us, don't settle for something small. Don't settle for just enough. Don't settle for fire insurance, as some people call it, with a wink and a smile. Don't settle for something that you go through a miserable existence, but somehow you're spared from hell when you die. No, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. Jesus is saying, don't settle. There's always more than meets the eye. He has more for us than we can possibly hope or imagine. And so my encouragement to you today is to ask God for the more that he has for you. Ask God for what he wants in your life and lean into that. It may be something unexpected. Now we're going to close this service by partaking in communion and we're going to prove that nothing horrible happens if you have communion two weeks in a row. We might even do it next week, too. I don't know. You'll have to come and see. But my hope and my prayer is in in doing this, that we partake in communion with a fresh set of eyes, with a fresh perspective, understanding a little bit more about what all it represents in this new covenant, as well as Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, that we have doors flown open to us, because of what Jesus did, that we can be in relationship with God himself, with the God of the universe, and that this isn't something that's relegated to a ritual that we do once a month, but that maybe each time in the future, communion would have a freshness, at least for a while, because with God, there's always more than meets the eye. And in these next few moments, you'll have some time to reflect upon your own redemption, your own resurrection from the old. You know, Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with him. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That we can partake in communion with a fresh set of eyes, with a fresh awareness and a fresh gratitude for all that has been done for us by Christ in this, that we can reflect upon the transformation that's available to us. And so you're going to have some time just to reflect, and we'll have some time where you can sing about God's deep, deep love for us. And then we'll come back. I'll I'll come back and lead us in partaking of the elements together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for the glorious reality that with you there's always more than meets the eye, that We ask you to help us to look beyond, to look deeper, to invite you into deeper places in our lives, to find a deeper place of surrender before you, to experience your love and your grace and your mercy more deeply, more completely. Help us to use these next few moments to confess anything that may have come between us since the last time we partook. Help us to invite you to open our eyes anew and afresh to all that has been done on our behalf, to all that we can receive. And help us, Lord, to reflect on just how immense your love for us truly is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.